Hello, I'm Stephen Cole, and welcome to a new series of the Answers Project podcast from CGTN Europe. Every week, we try and find the answers, or at least make sense of, one of the trickiest questions facing us in what is an increasingly complicated world. We've got access to some of the best brains on the planet to see if they can help shed light on some of the most pressing ethical, scientific, geopolitical, and, should we say, philosophical quandaries. I'm joined by one of them, Mari Beveridge, who's going to help me unravel this week's question. All right, Mari, what are we asking this week? This week, Stephen, we are asking, should all zoos be closed? Now, that is a very tough one, almost rhetorical for some people, and I can already see both sides of the question. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of elements to it. What makes a good zoo? Do aquariums count as zoos? Is closing them too strong an action? But perhaps closing some of them. Well, I, I, but it is a good place, Mari, to start. What is a zoo? That's the big question. You mentioned aquariums. What about sanctuaries, safari parks, even animal rehabilitation centres? That is a very good question. Uh, we can jump straight into it. So a zoo is an area where animals are kept for public exhibition, um, whereas wildlife sanctuaries are areas where wild animals are protected in their natural habitats. So zoos often have artificial habitats where temperatures are controlled, thinking of polar bears here, uh, and that's usually because they've been shipped in from different countries, whereas a sanctuary will usually house a native animal. OK, I, I understand that bit. So the, the key distinction here is that the primary purpose of a zoo is for the public to see the animals they've possibly seen on TV, but close up. Yeah, and some sanctuaries and wildlife parks do have animals on display because, of course, uh, visitors are very helpful for funding, but it's not their primary purpose. So the main purpose for sanctuaries is rehabilitation, saving animals uh, with the aim of returning them to the wild, or if they can't be returned, giving them as much space to roam as possible. So who decides all this? Who's the licensing body that makes that distinction? For example, if I wanted to start a zoo in my back garden, uh, like <laughs> Joe Exotic did, uh, the Tiger King, uh, which authority uh, would be in touch to shut me down? Well, I've always said you would really suit an earring, Stephen. <laughs> um, uh, so here in the UK, zoo, zoo operators, uh, you in this instant, Joe, Joe Exotic, you'd have to get a licence for any zoo that's open to the public for seven or more days a year. But internationally, it's a body called WAZA. I'm Martin Sordan, Chief Executive Officer at the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, WAZA. So WAZA's website says that it's the global alliance of regional associations, national federations, zoos and aquariums, all dedicated to the care and conservation of animals and their habitats around the world. Each country will have their own legislation on how a zoo and an aquarium needs to be run. There's a lot of diversity. Some countries don't even have a definition on what a zoo and an aquarium is. Then in some regions of the world, for example, Europe or the European Union particularly, you will have the EU zoos directive. And then you have something else that is not uh, legally binding, which are volunteer programs, certification, accreditation programs, that zoos and aquariums that wants to demonstrate that they have the highest standards go through this process. 
Well, the key phrase there, Murray, is it's not legally binding. So the rules are there are no rules, which occurs to me as a bit of a worry. What I heard there was that every country does it differently and WASA will offer guidance and support to their members. Basically, yeah. So there are plenty of countries with strict laws relating to zoos. Austria, Switzerland and Denmark all have incredibly high welfare standards and tight regulations. But there are huge parts of the Middle East that are not so hot on animal rights. Uh, in Iran, for example, there is currently no legislation or policy with regards to the welfare of animals in captivity. Those are always the horrible television shots, aren't they? Of mm. bears kept in very tiny cages, pacing up and down. Yeah. Or, or big mammals like lions in a very confined space. And that's, that's the really down, dark side of a zoo. And, and, and that, for me, raises the question of the purpose of zoos. I mean, we touched on it earlier, to display animals. But, I mean, on a human level or a philosophical level, what are zoos good for other than perhaps a nice day out with the family? Well, Martin Zordan from Waza would, would argue that they are actually very important for education and for creating a bond with animals that you can't get from, from watching them on TV. There is this concept of biophilia, which is how uh, interacting with life makes us feel. And there is something that is even science-based proof uh, is generated in people that have these experiences with with animals, with plants, and so on. I'm very concerned that this experience needs to be real so they, we don't suffer what is called uh, the extinction of experience, so they can have value. Because in this world where so much is virtual, it's very easy to value only what is virtual. So you could lose a species and you could keep still photos, videos of it, but that emotional connection is not there. Now, that really rings a chord for me, uh, and he, I think for both of us. We, he also used the term, Ari, the extinction of experience, and I've never thought about it like that before. Yeah, I, I think it's quite unsettling to think about the progressive loss of, of that human-nature interaction, and it, it could, could well be one of the key environmental concepts of our time. You know, there are a lot of uh, biodiversity summits and things going on, and I think this is a, a huge issue and, and could be a real sort of marker of, of this century. Agreed, and often they are only concepts. You can't grasp sometimes the core of those concepts. And I suppose these interactions are important, not only for our benefit, human benefit, but it may also undermine support for pro-biodiversity policymaking by the policymakers in the future. Yeah, that's true. Martin also mentioned the word uh, biophilia, which is about our human instinct to connect with nature and other living beings. So the pro-zoos argument is all about connection to animals and, and what's best for animals. But I want to introduce um, an evolutionary biologist who's been studying animals in captivity for a long time. My name is Mark Beckoff and I live in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a professor emeritus of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And for many, many years, I've been studying the social behavior of various animals in the field. And I'm a strong um, supporter of the rapidly emerging field of compassionate conservation. So very quickly, compassionate conservation aims to combine the fields of conservation and animal welfare, and the founding principle of this whole practice is do no harm. Nobody can argue with do no harm, but I'm not 
quite sure I'm on board with compassionate conservation. Dispassionate conservation perhaps might be stronger. <laughs> but <laughs> Mark Burkhoff has been studying captive animals throughout his career. What did he find? Well, listen to this. Their freedom of movement and their freedom to make choices is really strongly restricted. I mean, they're fed at certain hours of the day. They hang out with other individuals if there are other individuals at all in, you know, typically unnatural groups. It's impossible for any kind of zoo or wildlife park to replicate what it would be like for a wild wolf or chimpanzee or gorilla or elephant um, to live in natural groups. Um, so they're stressed. They don't have a lot of choice over who they live with, what they eat, when they sleep, where they sleep. And they often don't have any way to get out of the public eye to the extent that they need it. You know, they can go behind bushes or in holes in the ground or something like that. But they're just stressed because they have strong restrictions on the freedoms that they want. And that would be the freedom to be the individual they want as a member of a given species and also to perform behavior uh, patterns that are natural to them. And I think what Mark is, is, is showing there, clearly the, the link, direct link between emotion, human emotion and animals and how they are conserved or displayed. And we've all been to zoos where they, the zoo keepers, the zoo management, deliberately make sure the animals have nowhere to hide. Because obviously it's a business. They want the public to see the animals. Yeah. Uh, and those animals are showing signs of stress. There are too many artificial elements of life in captivity that could never be as good as well, not least the size of the, of the cages or the pounds. What did he make of our podcast question, though? What, what, what did he make of should all zoos be closed? Well, you'd think he'd be completely in favour of zoos closing, but he had a very nuanced answer about the way zoos should exist and whether there is a place for them. What I would like to see would be zoos converted to rehab and rescue centers for animals who literally can't go anywhere else. And, you know, some people will argue, well, these animals who are zooed, we call them zooed animals, can't go anywhere because they live in captivity. But that's, that's not what I really mean. I mean, what I really mean would be animals in need. And so along that line, it would be no more captive breeding, no more killing animals. And I mean killing them, they're not being euthanized. Euthanasia is mercy killing. These are animals who are being killed because they can't contribute to a zoo's breeding program. That's out the door, shipping animals around basically as breeding machines, which zoos do. And zoos also kill otherwise healthy animals who can't be used to breed. So Mark brings us to a really important part of this whole debate here, and that is around breeding programs. Um, many zoos have what is called a captive breeding program for endangered species. And on the one hand, these are great, because if they were left to their own devices in the wild, these individual animals might have trouble finding mates and breeding, and, and the species could become uh, extinct. But, but uh, I feel there is a but coming up here. Uh, yes, always with this podcast. But removing wild animals from their natural habitat further endangers non the non-captive population because the remaining ones will be less genetically diverse and may have even greater difficulty finding mates. OK, that, that's quite a complex line to take in, isn't it, that one? Because mm -hmm. I, I thought 
breeding programs were designed to help save a species. Uh, and then, uh, optimistically, I suppose, I, I thought the animals were then released back into the wild. Yeah, I guess the issue is, is with the genetic diversity. So, you know, if you're taking very rare species out of the wild, there aren't enough of them left in the wild to continue to find mates, I guess, is, is that argument. But yes, on, on the releasing animals back into the wild, some of them are, but the vast majority of captive breeding programs don't release animals back into the wild. And the offspring are only really useful if they can contribute to the breeding program. Uh, and if they aren't, they'll be culled. And what's more, the babies that do survive are forever part of a chain of zoos and exotic pet trades and even like circuses. And, and they all tend to exploit animals and exist simply for the entertainment of humans, as we were talking about earlier. OK, well, there's a definite for me in this one, because exotic pet trades should be banned. I'm coming off the fence on that one. <laughs> but it, it doesn't seem fair, does it? No. No. Uh, it's funny that you mention the word fair, though, because this brings me perfectly on to our next guest, uh, someone who specialises in justice for animals. I would like to introduce him as an elephant lawyer, because it's a great title, uh, but I'm going to let him introduce himself instead. My name is uh, Kevin Schneider. I'm an attorney and the executive director of the Non-Human Rights Project. Uh, we're a civil rights organisation that's dedicated to having courts and other bodies recognise the rights of at least certain non-human animals. So, for once, we don't have the elephant in the room, we have the elephant lawyer in the room. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> non-human animals. What on earth are non-human animals? Uh, so, it's a good question. Speaking to people from the animal rights movement, I found it is very common to distinguish between human animals and non-human animals. So, for example, you are a human animal, a cat is a non-human animal. I've got the answer to this. Yeah. <laughs> Why not just call them animals? <laughs> it's a good question, but I do think that this distinction helps to remind people that non-human animals have similar characteristics to humans, so uh, pain, compassion, memory, and, and things like cognitive function. Um, so some animal rights activists argue that these similarities justify giving non-human animals rights that human society has afforded to humans. So human rights um, without having to send birthday cards. Exactly. And this, this attorney, <laughs> Kevin Schneider, is one such... Um, is he a, a non-human...? Oh, no, he is, a, he is a human, isn't he? He's a person. Yes, he's a, he's a person, but he is an advocate for non-human animals. Uh, here he is again. We work primarily through the common law in American courts, and we've been filing habeas corpus petitions on behalf of chimpanzees and elephants uh, in New York since 2013. Stephen, to avoid me patronising you here, how much do you know about habeas corpus? Would you be able to explain uh, what, what it is to our listeners? Yes, I would, I because I learnt about it in school. It's basically the core of every human right we currently enjoy, and it is centuries old. It's something issued by a court in modern times, or judge, and it directs whoever is holding someone in custody to produce a specific reason for why they're holding them. Well, well done. I, I knew of it. There's a play called Habeas Corpus that I was in, but beyond that, I really, my Latin is really? not that hot. Yes. Yes, I was an actor in my time, Stephen, before yeah. I started doing this. Um, but yes, Habeas Corpus is a, is a writ, and it's mostly used for uh, violations of uh, personal liberty, so raising questions about the um, legality of, of a detention. 
So what we do is come to courts and say, hey, you know, you care about autonomy that's related to habeas corpus and protecting this right to bodily liberty. But hey, science now shows us that humans are not the only beings in the world who have autonomy and who value their own bodily liberty, their own freedom. So we take all that, put that together and, and in a lot of ways use very kind of old arguments, tested arguments and try to have them be applied to something rather novel, which is expanding rights beyond just our species. So Kevin is saying these animals, I mean, non-human animals... Well done. ...should have the same rights. <laughs> they should enjoy habeas corpus as human beings. And by that logic, they shouldn't be detained in a zoo without yes. having a lawyer. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Have, have they been successful with any cases so far? Remember I mentioned that Kevin was an elephant lawyer? The elephant is called Happy. And in 2006, she made history as the first elephant to pass a crucial intelligence test. Um, she can recognize herself in a mirror. Now, despite her name, she was dubbed the Bronx Zoo's loneliest elephant by the New York Times because she lives in total isolation away from all the other zoo's other elephants. Kevin wants her to be moved to a sanctuary, and, and the case was dismissed by the Bronx Supreme Court in February, but he is still very upbeat about the whole exercise because they are currently appealing that decision. This is the first time that the highest court chose to take up our case. That's absolutely no guarantee that they're going to rule in our favor, but it does open up a window that the court could, for the first time, choose to do that, which would be, of course, huge for Happy and huge for the idea generally that an elephant can have legal rights. But of course, you know, the zoo is not wanting to let Happy go. There have been a number of elephants who have died at the zoo. Of course, they live and die at the zoo, and some of them have died in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. You know, generally speaking, elephants in captivity, which really comes as no surprise once I think you start to understand their psychology and cognition, they get depressed and stressed and bored. And, you know, I think like a human being might feel after decades of that, they don't really have a will to live a very long life. You know, they can live into their 70s or sometimes even older in sanctuaries and in their own environments in the wild. I mean, what he's doing, he's applying a lot of human standards to animals. Purely from a personal point of view, I I've seen elephants close up on safari in Africa, and they are the most majestic, mm. beautiful animals. And he talks about them living till 70. And they, can, and they have family groups. They've even proved they have grandmothers within a group of elephants. And they're very clever. And they're very clever. The sensitivity of their trunk and bringing up the younger elephants is most fantastic. They really are stunningly beautiful. And I think he's entirely right. No elephant should be isolated. So he must be happy for happy, happy <laughs> to be moved to a sanctuary. Yes, I think everyone seems in favour of sanctuaries. Um, here I want to go to our final guest in Uganda. Hello, my name is Dr. Gladys Kalemazipsoka. I'm a wildlife veterinarian and working with gorillas and other wildlife and also founder and chief executive officer of a grassroots NGO based in Uganda. That, in, that promotes conservation by enabling people to coexist with gorillas and other wildlife. Dr. Kalema Zikasoka really echoed something that we heard from Martin Zordan earlier about the importance of young people seeing animals and connecting with them. 
the biggest customers are Ugandan children because most people come to visit and they're just so fascinated because that's the only time they're going to see an elephant or they're going to see a rhino when they go to a zoo or a monkey in some cases and then they'll start to appreciate it and they'll want to protect it later because that's the whole theory of it. And it's a very good theory. I mean, I remember as a child riding on the back of an elephant at a zoo and it was great fun, but I didn't think about you know, whether elephants were threatened or not, or whether this was a cruel act. But maybe when these children are taken to these zoos, if, if everything is explained properly about the threat to them and the whole ecology surrounding an elephant, I think that can work. And I suppose in that way they're inspiring the next generation of vets and zoologists, the, the next... David Attenborough, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Or even the next uh, Dr. Gladys Kalamazuka-Sofia. Zoos hope to train people like me who are going to go out and have you to treat these same animals in the wild. We get a lot of experience treating them in captivity, which helps us to treat them in the wild. And so I, that was the first letter I wrote to the Brit Records because I felt very strongly about that. But however, not all zoos serve a useful purpose. Um, it depends on the ethics, what their focus is, because I, a lot of people see zoos as entertainment centers. And I think zoos are important if they educate people about the species and its habitats. So based on what we've heard from all of our experts today, what is your conclusion, Stephen? I, don't even, I didn't even ask you at the beginning sort of which side of the, the fence you sit on with this, but has your opinion changed at all? Not entirely. It's too a wider question, should all zoos be closed? Because I think some should. Singapore Zoo, one of the best in the world, and you know Singapore Zoo... I do, I know it very well. ..is incredibly well run. And I think they just had a new panda born in Singapore Zoo. London Zoo has the most amazing preservation and conservation programmes, and they do a lot of scientific work there. And the people coming through the gates to see the animals pay for the conservation work. That seems a good idea for a business, but it's the lesser zoos, as I mentioned earlier, the cruel ones, the small ones, the badly kept zoos, the ones where the animals are constrained and confined yeah. and badly fed. And I think that has to go down to government level to stop the import of animals and the trading of animals. So should all zoos be closed? Well, I think a zoo is only really as good as its practices. Uh, I, I think that's quite nicely put, actually. Well, thank you. What about you? I mean, you were brought up large in Singapore, so you, you, you were close to animals, close to the jungle, and you went to the Singapore Zoo a lot. I was very spoilt with Singapore Zoo. I think it's the second best in the world after the San Diego Zoo. I'm big in favour of sanctuaries, but I do think, by and large, all zoos that are exploiting animals um, should be closed. But I guess my more nuanced answer is they should be closed over a period of time and the facilities of zoos should be converted into sort of sanctuaries to care for animals that can't be released back into the wild. So, and, and captive breeding and culling is cruel and has so, to stop. But some culling is right, isn't it? It's certainly in Africa. And the rangers who look after some of these safari parks, they really care a huge amount about the animals. So they have to do some culling. What about safari parks? You know what? I haven't been on many safari parks. I haven't, I haven't been to many of those. So. There's a lot of room, and I mean, I've seen them in Africa and here, Longleat, obviously, mm. in, in England. Um, and they work. I mean, how the lions deal with the British weather, I've no idea. That, that could be punishment alone. But I agree with you. Should all captive facilities be closed? No. 
but should we stop moving animals from all over the world out of their natural habitats into concrete cages? A big yes. Yeah, I agree. Captive facilities should be educational sanctuaries and not just entertainment venues. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Mari. Well, we're hoping you, uh, the listener, our audience, will get in touch to tell us what you think. Do you think animals belong in zoos or should we close them all down? Let us know. And if you have a question you'd like answered, we'd love to get to the bottom of it on the next episode of The Answers Project. Find us on CGTN Europe's Facebook or Twitter page. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.